Hello and welcome to episode two of Agents of Tech, our brand new science and technology podcast. I'm your host, Autria Godfrey. And I'm Stephen Horn. Together, we explore the cutting-edge technology shaping our world today, from big data and quantum computing to AI and robotics. Agents of Tech delves into the science and technology and the ways in which they can meet some of society's biggest challenges. Each episode features in-depth interviews with leading experts in the field, discussing the latest developments and their potential to improve our lives. I'm just back from Las Vegas, Nevada, attending the American Physical Society March Meeting. It's the biggest physics conference in the world with over 10,000 attendees. It's here I caught up with Albert Laszlo Barabasi, a pioneer of network science. It really is a field of science that applies to everything from professional networks, medicine, the mapping of the brain, or how big tech companies work. So first of all, thank you. Thank you very much for coming to talk to us. It's a, a great pleasure. Thank it's you. It's a pleasure to come home to the APS. <laughs> so the so first question is, let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, network science. Uh, what exactly is network science? Most complex systems around us, or I would just say all complex systems around us, work as a network. The biological existence of us is really determined by how the proteins are interacting with each other. Life is really about the interaction of the components. Our consciousness is through the connections between the neurons. And if you think about the society or even the professional relationships, you know, APS is really a place where we nurture our professional network, where we meet others and so on. So network science is a new field of statistical physics that aims to map out and understand the emerging properties of these different kind of networks. It was in 1995 when I was a postdoc at IBM in physical sciences when I really became interested in networks. And, but my really first major contribution came in 99 when we were able to first map out uh, the World Wide Web, finding out how web pages are connected to each other. And that map led to the realization that in contrast with the prevailing theories of how large networks should look like, which assume that networks are random, real networks are not random. So let me be specific. Why would we assume that networks would be random? Because at the end, there's lots of randomness of how you and I meet or become friends. Uh, there's lots of randomness whether two molecules will actually meet in the cell and so on and so forth. So given that inherent randomness of how networks form has prompted many scientists from the 1960s on to assume that it's purely random the way the network forms. Randomness has predictable consequences. One of them is that in a random network, we are all alike. We have roughly the same number of friends, you and I, and everybody else around that, which we know it's clearly not true. How many people you interviewed during this week? How many friends you already have, <laughs> right? Which I didn't because I just arrived. So given that we know that there are huge differences in the number of links nodes have, whether how many links a web page has, how many people point to it, or how many citations a research paper gets a physics paper, or how many acquaintances you have. And the random network model assumed that they will be all the same roughly. And we discovered using the map of the World Wide Web that this is the, not the case. Rather, 
Many, many small nodes in a real network coexist with a few major hubs. Highly popular individuals like the president of APS, right? Uh, very promiscuous proteins that interact with many others like the cancer gene, the P53, or Google or Facebook where hundreds of millions of links point to them. And that was a massive deviation and forced us to rethink actually how we think about networks. This was the first indication that networks have their underlying architecture that is governed by simple but reproducible laws. When you found that out, what difference did that make to the way that you thought about networks? Oh, it opened a can of worms and lots of beautiful possibilities because the signatures of non-randomness were those signatures that in statistical mechanics, in particular critical phenomena, we've been always seeing. Every, for example, when the water freezes or water becomes gas, it evaporates, we see a phase transition. And the mathematical description of that describes, predicts that there are lots of what we call power laws emerge in that moment. And it was that power law that we suddenly saw in networks. So suddenly we saw the parallels to bring the two sets of statistical physics to the problem. And we did, we and many others. And, and really within a few years, network science or a theory of networks has emerged. Where everybody assumed before randomness, now we could actually have predictable patterns and mathematical tools to predict those patterns and understand many, many kind of real networks. One of the, the fields that you're also well known for is network medicine. Describe that to us. So once we became interested first in the World Wide Web, we said, where do we see these similar architectures? And physicists love, and I love as a physicist, the concept of universality, whether the same law applies many different places, like gravity governs so many processes, like why my phone falls down if I drop it, all the way to why is the moon moving around Earth. And, and what we first saw is that there is similar universality in networks, that multiple systems obey the same laws. And one system we started to study early on was biological systems, how the proteins connect to each other and how the metabolites connect to each other. And it was that research that led to the idea or the concept of network medicine that is a field of its own. What is network medicine? The human genome was a breakthrough for biology because it provided the list of genes that exist in the human body and in other organisms. But it did not provide the blueprint. That is, this would be similar to giving you the phone book, the proverbial phone book that doesn't exist any longer, with addresses and phone numbers, but would not actually give you the Google Maps of how you go from A to B. And really the way the cell works is really through the interaction between the different proteins and metabolites. And Networks Medicine goal is to map out these interactions and to understand these interactions to develop new drugs and to effectively come new cures diseases, and more important, to understand what life is. How are we doing with that? Well, I think it's, it exploded really in the last few years. So it was less than 10 years ago that I used the term network medicine as a title of one of my papers. And now we have actually a network medicine division at Harvard. We have a, a network medicine international uh, conference and association that, that connects like top 50 universities around the world. And most important, it has already led to cures. 
And what I mean by that, that I was also involved funding a company that used network medicine ideas to bring it to patients. And today, if you have a rheumatitis arthritis, your doctor can recommend a network medicine-based blood test that will tell you whether leading drug will work for you or not. So this is the first example that we see this in practice. And there are many, many other kind of discoveries coming out from network medicine that have entered the clinical trial pipeline that sooner or later will be bringing back to the uh, patients. What other uh, networks are there out there that network science can help us understand? I'm thinking of things maybe like climate change or what are the other big issues that we face that... Well, network science has really come to age very much during the pandemic because at the end how the pandemic spreads is through the contact and the social networks. And so it's not surprising that Alessandro Vespignani, who is my colleague at the Network Science Institute in Boston, he became immediately the White House modeler for the pandemic. And many network scientists were deeply involved all around the world working with governments to understand how and how far the pandemic will spread and kind of come up with interventions that would slow down its spread. So that's one application that is clearly has really brought network science to the dinner table. So conversations about reproductive number and number of contacts and contact networks that previously you could hear only at the APS in the network science session now suddenly became a dinner table conversation. Uh, but there are many, many other areas where networks are pretty important. One big area that is coming towards us is brain science. We knew since Ramon Cayal, the very first biology Nobel Prize, that the brain is a network. He was the one who first showed with the microscope that the neurons exist. But until about three to five years ago, we did not have a map of that network. And now net, brain science has started to develop the tools to really map out at the individual neural level the uh, different type of brains. I would not necessarily volunteer for the, the process because you have to slice the brain to half a micrometer slices to achieve that. But for the first time, we have the blueprint of how the brain is connected together. That will lead to a revolution in neuroscience. And then I should also mention the technological applications where network science is already present. You know, you name the top five companies in Silicon Valley, Google, Facebook, Twitter, Apple, and even Cisco, and you will realize that their business model is all based on network. You take away the network and the business uh, disappears. Google is a web mapping company. It provides value by mapping the web. Facebook maps our social network, Twitter our knowledge network, and even Apple, who looks like a phone company, it's really giving you a device through which you are part of the network, and it's very conscious of that. So at the end, you know, our life is so deeply determined by these networks that, that surround us, and network science, rooted in statistical physics, has really provided the tool set to quantify and to understand these type of networks. Who, ha who has network science given these tools to? I mean, the way that you described the big companies in Silicon Valley was absolutely fascinating, but, but that's a way for them to make literally billions of dollars by, 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 by doing that. So to whose advantage is this being? Well, I mean, at the end, it's not only the Silicon Valley's company, that's a business model. It's also our advantage because I was able to come to this meeting, download the app. I don't have to carry that very, very big book around as I used to be 10 years ago when I came to Las Vegas, right? <laughs> and I'm able to get instant knowledge. 
that type of connectivity is partly thanks to network science, right? To really understand how you route information on this massive network, how you efficiently deliver information, how do I find the shortest path to your friend? Those are all required. Uh, so, so I would not think of it as saying, oh, we just made Google rich. No, we made our life much easier. And, and the same is true for many other applications in the sense that at the end, sure enough, you know, when the cures are becoming available that are network science based, we will benefit from that. And that's the way I think about network science, that in a way it has really proved offered applications and its way of thinking that penetrates most of our way of life. Probably an unfair question, but well, is there a single application, is there a single area that you're most excited about? Well, of course, my lab is very, very focused on, uh, on bio, uh, network medicine and biological networks, and I can see the vision behind that and how transformative this will be for us. But I, I'm just as excited about what neuroscience will do with, uh, with now that they have the map, right? And they will have to bring network scientists in to help them interpret this large and massive map. And what kind of innovations would that lead to? And I'm just as excited down the line what will happen when the economic processes will be properly described as a network. And if you think about even climate change, if you think about Gaia, the reason why it's so complicated is because we have not correctly mapped out the network, the many dependencies that really go, uh, uh, govern uh, the, the climate and the, and the different aspects of it. And we would need we would desperately network type of thinking to really uh, get good models in that systems. One of the awards you've won is, is you're partly down to your ability to communicate and to communicate to uh, di diverse audiences. We live in a time when, uh, when science, as we've been discussing, has got so much to offer to the big problems that the, the world faces. But being honest, uh, science is not universally respected out there. So how important is it for scientists to be able to, to communicate? Oh, I think it's very important and it, it important at many, many different levels. Because on the one end, it's important to simply communicate to our own students and to our own community about the importance of the particular problem we are doing. So I would start there, right? First, you have to convince your peers about what you do. But then there's a bigger problem, right? Is that how do we show the value of science to larger community and to the society at large at the moment where fake news have just to get just as much attention than real news. And, and, and in that moment, I think none of us can escape the process that we have to be able to talk about our research. And we have different, say, talents and ability to do so. But the best of our talents, if, even if it starts at the bar or at the dinner table at our family, we need to start kind of breaking it down. Why do we do what we do? Well, thank you ever so much indeed for joining us today. We really appreciate it. It's absolutely fascinating. You've given me so much food for thought, so thank you. Thank you. Fascinating, isn't it? And for me, he really breaks down so well how network science works in all its forms. It is a fascinating field, and I am sure we will return to it. Next up, though, Brad Marston from Brown Theoretical Physics Center is using theoretical and computational physics to better understand quantum matter, including the Earth's atmospheres and oceans. He's also interested in how this pertains to climate change. 
talk us through how theoretical and computational physics can better help us better understand quantum matter. Well, uh, quantum matter is described uh, at most basic level by mathematical laws that um, are the realm of theoretical physics and computers can also simulate them. So a uh, combination of the two is a powerful way to investigate them. Can you talk about some of the specific challenges you face when you try and model and understand non-equilibrium systems? Right, well, non-equilibrium systems lack a central organizing principle uh, that equilibrium systems have. They don't, there's not a Boltzmann principle that we can appeal to. So each one has its own character. And as far as we know, there's not an overarching theory, or at least we haven't found such an overarching theory yet. We know sort of bits and pieces, uh, but um, I think that we're going to be working on this problem for a century. Uh, so, yeah. So how do, you, how do you overcome these challenges? Well, a combination of theory and experiment and computation. Um, uh, I think the interplay between these different approaches to understanding non-equilibrium physics is essential. Um, there's lots of phenomena that we're surprised by that we wouldn't have anticipated from theory, uh, but we see an experiment or perhaps observation. It's a really good point. So talk us through some recent uh, discoveries that you've had. Yeah, so the one that I'll be discussing today uh, has to do with the discovery that uh, some of the phenomena that was first recognized in a completely different realm, the quantum Hall effect, applies to Earth's atmospheres and oceans and that some of the mathematics is nearly identical. So that came as a complete surprise and something that um, geophysicists hadn't really thought about, uh, but, and probably because of the separation between the fields, between geophysics and theor regular theoretical physics, quantum physics. So we were able to bring these two fields together and make this discovery. What do you think the next step with such a discovery would be? I know you're saying that you're a theoretical uh, physicist, and, and but so I'm not talking necessarily about applications. But but now that you've found this, what would the next step be? So uh, we're already taking the next steps. Uh, one thing that we're trying to do is to directly observe features that are topological in nature from observations of Earth's atmosphere and oceans, and uh, that's something that hasn't been done before and I'll be showing some preliminary results today uh, from that search. Your research obviously also touches, I mean, you were talking about it there on climate, and climate uh, change. So how do you see theoretical physics actually contributing to our understanding? Climate science is an incredibly broad field and there's contributions that are being made by all of the different sciences from geology, biology, um, fluid dynamics, also in the social sciences, uh, how humans behave. Um, but physicists have a particular way of looking at the world that I think is valuable. And um, uh, more attention should be paid to that particular point of view. It can join the other approaches in giving us a better understanding of the climate system. And do you think physics is heard in this particular debate, conversation? I think it's beginning to be heard. Well, actually, a lot of climate scientists uh, are physicists. They were trained initially as physicists before perhaps going into atmospheric sciences departments. Uh, but physicists who uh, remain in physics departments 
not so many of them work on climate science, but an increasing number do. And uh, APS has started this topical group on the physics of climate just to encourage that. One of the debates that we were having earlier today was on public policy and was how, how, how physics can kind of work to inform the debate on, on public policy. And we were particularly talking about this with, uh, with uh, climate science. How do you, important do you think it is that, that physics and physicists are engaged when it comes to public policy? Well, I think it's very important. Um, I'm a member of the panel on public affairs of the APS, which uh, does just that. So we take a physics point of view and try to look at different uh, public policy issues that are important, such as climate change. And uh, I think the physicists have something unique to contribute in that direction. But in the conversation we were having earlier, it sort of struck us that uh, the way that physicists engage in activity is very often very different to the way that a government might engage in activity. When we were talking about energy transition, we were talking about climate change, we were talking about when a physicist decides to do something, uh, he or she does it logically and, and works through and comes up with a, with a conclusion. It's not always the same when it comes to uh, public policy. So how do you think physicists can actually get in, in, involved with that? Right. Well, our strength is to present logical arguments, right. but certainly uh, there's a lot of emotion and politics behind a lot of these decisions. So it has to be part of a broader conversation. So I think it's a two-way conversation. Physicists need to listen to the, those broader concerns, uh, but also we have to stand by our understanding of, say, energy and what are the potentials and limits of different uh, ideas. How do you see theoretical physics evolving over the next five to ten years? I think it will continue to diversify in the range of topics that are covered. Uh, so we're already seeing, especially at a meeting like this, an incredible range of uh, uh, science areas that physics is moving into. So, for example, machine learning, trying to understand how machine learning works from a basic point of view, a statistical mechanical point of view, uh, quantum computing. Um, so I think that will just continue. Talk a little bit to us, if you would, about the role that uh, computational uh, modeling and simulation plays in your work. So unlike many climate scientists who work on the very largest models, very comprehensive models, uh, what I choose to do is work at a more idealized level where I'm modeling certain key processes. I'm not trying to uh, model the whole thing, but I'm zeroing in on certain uh, aspects of the climate system that I want to illustrate and understand better. Give us an example. So um, in these uh, waves, these waves of topological origin that uh, I'll be talking about, we've done some simulations of those waves, trying to account for the nonlinearity of those waves, something that's a completely uh, uh, not understood area of topological physics. And so that's required a computer to do. What's next for you? So uh, doing that, and uh, also we've been doing an experiment uh, using plasmas at UCLA, using a, a very large plasma device, a large plasma device. Uh, it's sort of a return uh, for me to an experiment. I haven't been doing an experiments for decades, and uh, so I've had to relearn some things. And we're looking for these waves in a different context, in a magnetized plasma, but they have similarities to the waves that we've been studying in the atmosphere and oceans. What do you think my final question would be, and it's perhaps 
not necessarily a fair question, but you're a theoretical physicist, as we've been discussing. What are some of the real-world applications that you think that your work can, can impact over the next few years? Right. Well, we don't know. Um, I think that's the fair answer. But uh, possibilities include understanding other wave-like phenomena in the uh, Earth climate system. So there's an, a climate oscillation called the Madden-Julian oscillation. Uh, which uh, is not well understood, or at least it's not understood at the kind of basic level that we would like. It's possible uh, that there are some topological aspects to that phenomena, and uh, I'd like to find out if that's the case. So that would be an example where if we are able to understand it better, we could have a better understanding of the kinds of oscillations in climate that occur naturally, and perhaps even how they might change under climate change. Great. Thank you very much indeed for talking to us. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. I think what's so interesting, Autry, is that both our guests in this episode want to communicate their ideas to the widest audience. You know, someone like Brad Marston, a theoretical physicist working on quantum matter, he really wants to engage with policy to address climate change. He's using cutting-edge physics to address some of the big challenges we all face. It's very fascinating, certainly. In our next episode, we are talking to two scientists whose work can be described as truly groundbreaking. Pablo Jario Herrero of MIT Physics tells us about his research field of twistronics. And Sidney Nagel from the University of Chicago discusses his work in disordered systems. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>